once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. With us the last two weeks, we are now in week three of a five-week series that we're calling Love Where You Live. And uh, the whole premise of this series is to say uh, God is providential, he's sovereign, and he's placed you where you are, geographically, where you live. It's not coincidence, it's not accident. You are where you are. Now, some of us may not like where we are. Some of us have ended up in Atlanta, maybe because of a job, and we go, I don't want to live here. I don't like the traffic. This is frustrating. But bottom line is, uh, we understand biblically that God is sovereign, and he's sovereign even over over your place where you are. So the question becomes, uh, what do I do with that? How do I become uh, more involved with what God wants to do, his redemptive work through me, into the lives around me, into the cities around me, the neighborhoods around me, the communities around me, even the systems, the the educational systems and the political systems, whatever it may be, how can I be a part of God's work in the place where I am? So that's that's where we've been headed. The first week we were, we kind of stayed at 35,000 feet uh, where we we really looked at the whole storyline, the big picture of the Bible and how God is writing this redemptive story all centered on the person of Jesus to bring his renewing work to his creation, which includes his people and the places where they are, to where at the end of it all, he will come again, Christ will come again, and he will bring the new heavens and the new earth, and he, we will be in our glorified bodies, and it will, all things will be made new, and as we wait on that, we get to be a part of this process of, of him making things new, first and foremost with us, and then through us to the people and the places around us. Last week we talked about the community that he's given us as a body of Christ, as a new community. What does it look like for us to be moving with him in that way into the places where we are in the communities that we exist? So that's where we've been the last two weeks. We're moving into this third week. Uh, but before we do, let me pray for us. Father, thanks for this time together. We count it a great privilege as we prayed earlier to come before you. Lord, we, we believe that your word is living and active. And we ask, God, that you would press it deep into our hearts this morning, that you would give us wisdom and insight, that you would uh, fill me with your Holy Spirit as your, as your vessel to communicate your truth and encouragement. God, may your word fall on hearts that are receptive, on ears that are ready to hear, and on eyes that are uh, primed to see the truth of your word and the beauty of Jesus. Would you bless this time? We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, in fact, it was many years ago, I, was, um, I had, had gotten to know this guy named Clay, and I really wanted Clay to know Jesus. And so the way I went about doing that is um, I didn't take much of an interest in Clay and his life and his story and, and his spiritual background. I just simply said, hey, Clay, why don't, why don't we just try to get together on a consistent basis. Sometimes it would be weekly, sometimes it would be every other week, but we probably met for, um, I, I really don't remember, maybe four or five, six weeks. And, and the only time I ever connected with him, the only time I ever spent time with him was at our lunches that happened sometimes once a week, sometimes every other week. And even during those times, 
when I was sitting with him, there was, there was no interest communicated on my end about him. If you've been to uh, what we offer here, Express Your Faith, which is a training on how to share your faith, it is just absolutely fantastic, done by Randy. But Randy talks about how oftentimes we can communicate the gospel to others in word by uh, just monologuing, where it's just us talking and they're listening and we're not really dialoguing with them. And that's what this was. It was week after week of me just monologuing and telling him why he needed Jesus. And then a few weeks into it, I don't remember, like I said, maybe five, four, five, six weeks, he finally got up the courage to say something to me that, that really pierced me when he said it. And in fact, it really made me mad when he said it. But the more that it set on me, the more I thought about it, and the more that God pushed it into my heart, I said, he is exactly right. One day he finally said to me, I feel like I'm your conversion project. And I, my first thought, I don't, don't remember saying this, was how dare you say that? Do you not know that I love you? I want you to know Jesus. And the answer to that was no, I don't know that you love me. Because what was happening in this interaction with, with Clay was he didn't have ears to hear my cause because he didn't perceive that I cared. So let's turn that on us. Let's, let's say it this way. To the, to the world out there who doesn't know Jesus, who's, uh, who's wrapped up in sin and oppression of sin and, and shame and guilt, there, it's going to be really hard for them to hear our cause if they don't perceive that we care. The main idea behind where we're headed this weekend is simply this, is the wounded who have experienced the compassion and healing of Jesus. In word and deed, we must proclaim him in both word and deed. Yes, we proclaim the gospel with our mouths, and that is incredibly important. We have to explain to people what it means to know Jesus, to understand that we have all sinned against him and that we need a rescuing Savior who will make things right again. So we have to proclaim that. But as we do that, if it's not accompanied with deed, with care, with concern, with compassion, with the demonstration of the gospel, then oftentimes it will fall on deaf ears. Let me give you a little bit of a history with this. Uh, one of our teaching pastors who's actually teaching the same series in the hangar for these five weeks, Bob Cargo, Bob and Caleb Click and I have been working on this sermon series together, and Bob shot us something this week via email that I found very interesting. It just simply said, how did the evangelical church stop caring for the poor and stop caring about injustice in the 20th century? I love history. History is one of those things that helps me understand why are we where we are? How can we learn from the past? Some of you, I don't know, I'm married to a woman that doesn't, she's not gripped by history like I am, and so I understand that some of this may grab some of you, may, some of you may not, but at least uh, listen so that it gives you some context as to what's happened in the last hundred or so years. He said this, after the Reformation and before the end of the 19th century, so get that time frame in your mind, the 1500s to the, about the end of the 1800s, Protestant believers Protestant evangelical churches were known for their ministries of mercy and justice. Now, this is a blanket statement. Certainly, there were some exceptions to this, I'm sure. But by and large, the Protestant evangelical church was known for their ministries of mercy and justice. But this dramatically changed in the 20th century. Why? There's two primary reasons, two main causes of why this began to change in the 20th century. The first is this. The rise and development of dispensational theology. Now, dispensa dispensational theology has some components to, it, components to it that we would say, yes, 
One of them being that we need to proclaim the gospel to all the nations and we need to, to tell everyone that we can about Jesus. And we would say yes and amen. But what began to happen and what, what this was birthed out of was this movement to say that expressing care and concern and demonstrating the gospel is not as, as, is not as much value as proclaiming it. And so that was the first reason. Secondly, the second, develop, the, sec, the second thing would be the development and rise of liberal theology. In the 1920s, there, there, was a, there was a movement of liberal theology that focused what we would now call on the social gospel, which was the opposite of what the dispensational theology emphasized. It was to say that what we really need to do is love people well, we need to meet their needs. We need to be hands and feet of Jesus. And what began to be devalued more and more in the social gospel was the proclamation through the word to tell people about Jesus. So you had these two things that were happening in the 20th century. And so what happened with the Protestant evangelical church is that what came out of that was we wanted mainline denominations of the church, wanted to separate themselves from liberal theology and say, no, we, we, don't, we, we want to proclaim the gospel, and then we, many of us align to dispensational theology. So what began to happen is you began to see the church abandoning ministries of mercy and justice to the point to where we are today, where it's a real struggle for some of us, a real struggle for some of us to embrace a gospel of word and deed. We would mostly all agree, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you would certainly agree we need to tell people about Jesus, but it can be very hard for us sometimes to come along with that and say, yes, we need to demonstrate it just as much as we proclaim it, and let's hope we're proclaiming it a lot. You see, we're, we're a people who really struggle with I call, what I have kind of jokingly referred to as the, is the, the pendulum syndrome. We are a people who are constantly trying to find this happy medium, medium in, in, in situations and in circumstances and in just kind of philosophy, if you will, of where really there's two pendulums. So, for example, the first 300 years of the church, really into the four, uh, 400th year of the church, all the early councils of the church, the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon, they were all trying to figure out what is the nature of Jesus? Who was Jesus? And there were these arguments, well, he's human, but his divinity is less, or he's fully divine, but I don't know about the humanity. And so there was this, there was this constant trying to swing the pendulum back and forth until finally through the, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, the, the early church fathers were able to say, you know what, what we see biblically over and over again is that it's both. It's not this medium 50-50 between humanity and divinity. It's fully human, fully divine. There's two pendulums. They're not in the middle. They're fully swung both ways. We often fail to see this. Oftentimes we do this with freedom and licentiousness. We say, well, I'm free in Christ. I can live however I want to. Now, theoretically, that's true. Yes, you're free to live however you want. So there's one pendulum. But when you're in Christ, he changes your heart and desires to where you live holy lives. But sometimes we're so afraid of legalism, of trying to perform before God, that we let the pendulum come back this way and we land in license. We land in sin. Because we're so afraid of legalism, things that God calls us to be holy, we don't label as holy, we say, no, that's legalistic. And so there's two pendulums when you start talking about this idea of word and deed. It's not, let's focus on meeting people's needs and lessen the proclamation of, word, of the word of the gospel. And it's not, let's only tell people about the gospel, but not let it be accompanied by the deeds of the gospel. It's fully both. We do this even with things that you know, are less important, less theological in nature. 
But even thinking about it, I just want you to get a little simple image in your mind. Uh, even thinking about a bicycle. It's going to be really hard to ride a bicycle with one wheel. You're going to be pedaling like crazy, and behind you, if you've got a front wheel and no back wheel, you're going to be, there's sparks flying everywhere, and you're going to be working really hard. And you're saying, but I'm, I'm, there's a wheel on here, and I'm pedaling really hard and really fast. Why is it, why is it doing what I want it to do, what, what it's supposed to do? I want you to get that image in your head that the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is both in word and in deed. We're going to see this really clearly in the scriptures this morning. Turn with me to Matthew 4. Matthew 4. And you'll see in your bulletin, as it's laid out there, that you've got printed for you verses 12 through 25. Where I want to start this morning is actually at the end of the passage. I want to start in verse 23. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, or maybe your translation says those who suffer from seizures, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This verse, this passage starts out, verse 23, by saying simply, he went through all Galilee, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So the first thing I want us to see this morning in this passage is that we need to be a people who are proclaiming Christ in word. It's clear that this is probably not going to surprise you based on my intro, but the first part, the first will, is that we have to proclaim Christ, we must proclaim Christ in word. But what is it we're proclaiming? What is it that Jesus was proclaiming in this passage? It says that he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what was that? So you have to back up a little bit in the passage. So if you will, back up in your bulletins or in your Bibles or on the screen, you'll see it. We're going to back up to verse 12 of chapter 4. Matthew's going to start helping us understand what's going on here. It says in verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. That's where Peter's hometown was. And so most commentators certainly agree that he lived with Peter. Jesus didn't have a home during his ministries, but he lived there in Capernaum. That was his home base. Then it says, in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali. Now, i got to tell you something. I have to laugh at myself. In the first service, I spent the entire first service saying this the way that I've always said it, which was Nephtali. And Bob Cargo, who was sitting in here and who's now teaching in the 1045 hangar, he texted me afterwards. He said, brother, you did a great job. I love you. But it's not pronounced Nephtali. It's Nephtali. And then I joked with him. I said, you got to remember, I'm from small town Alabama. You can take the boy out of small town Alabama. You can't take the small town out of the boy. So there's ways that we pronounce things with the wrong syllables, so you'll have to bear with me. But Nephtali is how that's said. But it says, in the land of Zebulun and Nephtali, so so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so the Matthew begins to quote Isaiah 7. It says this, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them light has dawned. For from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What gospel was Jesus proclaiming? Matthew is helping us understand that he's first and foremost 
coming into this region that I'll talk about in a second, what was important? Why was it significant for Isaiah to prophesy about Zebulun and Ephtali? Why was it important for Jesus to show up there first in this part of his ministry? But he came in there proclaiming, this Messiah that you've been waiting on, this long-awaited Messiah that you've read about in Isaiah, people of God, it's me. I'm here. I'm the light dawning in the darkness. Now this region, as I mentioned, that he went into, this is, these names, Zebulun and Naphtali, Naphtali, however you say it, I'll, I'll say it back and forth the whole time, just bear with me. They're not cities, these are regions. What they are is they're tribes. They're the names of the former tribes of Israel, two of the former tribes of, of Israel in the north. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they attacked the northern tribes and they pillaged and ransacked these tribes and they dispersed them into exile, even to the point to where these northern tribes didn't even really return back like the southern tribes did after their exile. And the two tribes that, were, that took the brunt of this the most, this attack from the Assyrians the most, were these two tribes. And so Jesus is showing up into a place where what's happening is that this is a place that has been long under the guilt and the shame and the oppression of sin and apostasy and disobedience. The reason that the Assyrians came to begin with, God allowed this to happen and even ordained it to happen as his chastening rod, his, his discipline for his people for their for the disobedience. And he said, okay, if you're going to continue to serve other gods in my place, then, and he prophesied over and over, about it over and over and over again, then destruction will come. And so the destruction comes, and it comes first and foremost to these two tribes to the point to where they never recover. So that by the time of Jesus, 700 years later, it's a land that is not filled with God's people, but it is a mixture of all these different types of nations and people to where they even call it Gentile of the nations, the land of the Gentiles, this place where it's no longer the land of God's people that Moses and Joshua had led them into, but now it's this place where they didn't obey, they weren't obedient, they were under the oppression and the dominion of sin to the extent that God gave them over to their enemies. So when Isaiah prophesies, stay with me here because this is important, when Isaiah prophesies in chapter 7 of his book that there will be a light that dawns in the darkness, in a land of great darkness, he's referring to this Messiah King who will come, and it's Jesus who shows up in this place. And to this place that's riddled with demons, with disobedience, with sadness, with shame, with guilt, with fear. A place that has lost its identity, its focus, its purpose. This is where he shows up, and he says, the light has dawned in the darkness. Now, here's what I want you to connect to. I want you to connect these places that you see on a page that you may have never heard of before, Zebulun and Naphtali. And I want you to think about how those places represent it at the first level that it's us. It's our hearts. I want you to think about 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that says this. It says, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you read about these two former tribes that Jesus showed up into and this brokenness that he showed up to, the first thing I want you to think about is that this is exactly what he did for me. 
God broke through the darkness in your own heart, in my own heart. If you were a Christian, if you are in Christ, as the scripture say, says, which means that you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have staked your life upon him through faith, that he is the rescuing savior that you so desperately need. He did not rescue you because you put your resume up before God and you said, this is how good I am, this is how savable I am, and God was somehow wooed to you by your goodness. There was no light in you. Ephesians 2.1 says that you were dead, that I was dead in the trespasses of our sins. And so God broke through the darkness in your life completely and totally because of his grace. And he penetrates our dark, hardened hearts, and he explodes his light into our darkness. And he says, I'm here. My grace has rescued you, and our eyes are open to the glory and the majesty of Jesus to where we cannot resist him, and we come to him, and we proclaim his excellencies, and we say, he is the one for whom my soul has longed, and we feel what we've always longed to feel, and we know what we've always longed to know, and that is that Jesus is the one. So then what are we to do with that? We reflect on it, we think about it, we worship him and praise him, but then what do we do with it? We then take this same light and we take it into the darkness around us, the place where you live, your homes, your neighborhoods, your communities, your schools, your workplace, everywhere that God has placed you, you are the light in the darkness. Jesus is in you. You are the light shining on the hill. We, as the body of Christ and his church, are the light shining on the hill. But one of our struggles is this, is that we come in here and we say, look how bright the light is. Isn't he glorious? And then we walk out there to a dark and dying world who knows nothing of his light, and we don't proclaim him. We don't tell of him and his excellencies. We don't say, look at this light. We just go about our business and we keep our head down and we say, I sure wish you'd come to church. And they go, why? Will we let our light shine? Will we let the light shine through us and to pierce the darkness around us in the places that where we are in such a way that people will be drawn to us in the same way that they were drawn to Jesus? Did you notice what happened at the end of this passage? It said that people came from all over, from the Decapolis, from Judea, from Samaria, from all, that means the four corners. They came from everywhere because they saw the light and they were attracted to it. And Jesus came proclaiming this great gospel. Secondly, we must be a people who not only proclaim the gospel in word, but also proclaim it in deed. Look at the second half of verse 23 that we, led earlier, that we read earlier. It says that he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Then it says this, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, that didn't mean that he healed every single person in Galilee. What it means is that every, thing, every person that came to him, every disease that came to him, he had full and complete power over it to heal it. There was nothing that came before Jesus that thwarted his ability as king of the universe to dispel the effects of sin and death. Now, listen to what it says. Look at what it says in verse 24. It says, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by, listen to these categories. First, demons, that's spiritual. Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. 
So they brought to him those who were oppressed by demons. Secondly, epileptics, or those who are suffering from, from seizures. That's to help us see that that's the second category of mental or emotional diseases and disorders, disabilities. He has authority and power over the spiritual. He has authority and power over the emotional, the mental. And then lastly, they brought paralytics to him. That is to, to say that those who are physically disabled, those who are physically ridden with disease, whatever it may be, they came to Jesus and not one of them who came to him. Did Jesus go, I can't deal with that? He healed he demonstrated, he gave a foretaste, he gave this beautiful foreshadowing of the full kingdom that will come when he comes again. He's ushering this new kingdom where all things are beginning to be made new. And all the effects of sin, all the sad things are becoming untrue. This is the way that Jesus came, proclaiming and healing There's so much that Jesus needs to heal. So much that we long for him to heal. In our broken cities, in our broken lives. We look around us, we even sometimes look around us here in this church, but certainly in the world around us, and we just see brokenness everywhere. We see marriages that have been ravaged by pornography and infidelity. We see sons and daughters who have been ravaged by drugs and alcohol addictions. We see sons and daughters who have been ravaged by the eating disorders, identity crisis. We see depression and anxiety just increasing at just alarming rates. And just so you know, as one who sits on this stage, I have struggled with depression and anxiety. I have tasted glimpses of God healing me from that, but I don't know that I'm fully healed. I think there'll probably be, as I continue in my life, there will probably be more times where I struggle with depression and anxiety. But I am looking to the day when I will be, I and you, if you're in Christ, we will be healed. It will happen. There is no disease or deformity on this earth that on that last great day when we stand before Jesus, there's nothing that will thwart his ability to fully heal us and glorify us in his presence. We pray often for healing as we should. Let me just say this. Let me take a side note and say here, I, I would say we're a part of a, of, a, of a theological grid that we don't pray for healing enough. What happens within our denomination far too often is that we we lean upon the sovereignty of God in, in such a way that we actually land on fatalism. We actually say God is going to do whatever he's going to do, so why pray? He's sovereign. But what we see in the scriptures over and over and over again is Jesus saying, pray, ask me for things. He even tells his disciples, you will do even greater things than I do. And so what, what, what can happen sometimes is that we pray for healing. We pray for someone to, to be healed, and we don't see it happen. And so we just assume God's not healing, but God is healing in this life now. And he chooses to heal physically where he will, and that's up to him. But it doesn't mean that we don't pray for it and that he doesn't hear our prayers and that he's not moved by our prayers. It means that we're in this already not yet, this kingdom that has already come, and we're getting to get tastes of it now, these, these inklings of what it's going to be like when he fully comes again and everything is made new and all things are healed. 
And we get to be a part of seeing him do that here and there. And sometimes he doesn't. And we go, why? And we don't know. But we trust him because we know that we know that we know throughout the scriptures over and over and over and over again that he loves us. So we trust him. But friends, let me tell you something. Pray for healing. And see what he does. I'll never forget. A few years back, I was with some of my closest friends and They were pregnant with their second child, and they had just received a diagnosis from the doctor that this child was going to be born with fairly significant disorder. And they were obviously grieved about this. They were sad about it. So we naturally gathered around them. There was about 10 of us, and we laid hands on them, and we prayed for them. And and in that time, I experienced something that I've never experienced before or since, but I hope to again. As I began praying for this dear friend, I began praying, and, and I couldn't get words out. All I could get out were, were uh, I was just crying. I was weeping. I just kept crying. I don't cry. I, I like to pride myself on this guy that doesn't cry, right? Men, you with me? But I was crying so uh, uncontrollably. And I, and I don't know how long it lasted, two, three, four, five minutes, to the point to where the only thing I eventually got out, and I'm not exaggerating the story, but eventually all I could get out is I just said, God, thank you that you have healed this baby. As it came out of my mouth, I went, what, did that just, did did, did I just say that? I don't remember how long, maybe a week or two later, they had a follow-up appointment with their doctor, and when they did the ultrasound and did the blood test, everything was fine. God is still in the business of healing. He first heals our hearts spiritually, but he will heal on this side of heaven. And what's hard about that is it doesn't happen for everybody. But listen to me. Listen, don't tune me out. It will. It will. You will be healed. I will be healed when he comes again. Listen to this story. I want to read you an excerpt. This is a journal entry on the Caring Bridge website by Tom Maywall. Tom was a longtime member at one of our daughter churches in town, Community Church. And in the last seven years of his life, he and Amy came to Perimeter. Amy is still here. We love them and so thankful for them. Tom... Tom passed away after 16 years of battling cancer. Passed away in April of 2012. A month and eight days before he passed away, listen to what he wrote. He says, although a lot of people might think of peace as the absence of conflict, it is far more than that. It is a matter of everything being set right. But in the hardness of life today, that can be hard to imagine. What would life be like with our hurts extracted, with our loneliness replaced by perfect intimacy? with our slightest needs met? What if all was set right? What if the hardship we call life today is just a pause between the original perfection of Eden and the ultimate restoration of heaven on earth? And then he says this, there's good news. It is. It's as if a beautiful fabric of infinite value were torn in half, leaving loose strands hanging with no hope for repair. Perfection seems lost, but alas, the God of living hope steps in in the tattered fabric of our lives is repaired. God is up to something, even if we don't experience until after we die. But what is amazing is that God doesn't just patch up the fabric of our lives, leaving seams and stitch marks. He makes us beautiful. No holes, no, no seams. Perfect. That is the picture of peace that I hold on to. Although I'm far, far from it today, the Bible's description of God making all things new encourages me and gives perspective on the bigger, more glorious work of his grand plan that I'm unable to fully see now. Here's my point in reading that from Tom. Tom was dying of cancer. He knew it. 
He's a month out from passing away. He knew that cancer was taking him. But he exhibited the light of Christ to the world around him in a way that displayed that we even die different when we know Jesus. We even die different. We, the world looks at us and goes, there, there is mourning, yes. We are sad, yes. But how can you write that? How can you say that? Because we know that there is a day coming where all will be made new. Now, how do we draw this back to us? We are to be a people who, as I said at the beginning, we have been wounded. We know what it's like to be wounded and marred by sin, but we have heard the gospel and we have experienced the gospel. And so what do we do? We turn in the places that we are, in the sovereign places that God has put us, and we bring the word of Christ and we bring the deeds of Christ. We are a people who proclaim him in word, and then we are a people who show his compassion and care in ways that they don't ever say to us, like Clay said to me, I feel like I'm your conversion project. They say, I know he loves me. I know she loves me. I'm going to listen. Now, lastly and briefly, I want to show you something that just fires me up about this passage that I just think is incredible. Here's what's happening in the bigger picture of what Matthew is drawing out for us here. I read to you 4, 23 through 25 of Matthew. Now, these are the words that are right before Jesus gives his famous Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so I want you to get this picture with me. I'm going to... I'm gonna, um, try to lay this out for you to where you can see it visually. So what happens is at the very end of chapter 4 of Matthew, he says this phrase that Jesus was going into all of Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God. So he's proclaiming the gospel, and then it says that he was healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, so there's this kind of sentence of what Jesus was doing, and then it immediately goes into these two chapters where Jesus proclaims. He teaches. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, where he, he teaches claims the word. Then, the next two chapters after that, he, he performs 10 miracles. So you get two chapters of Jesus proclaiming and then two chapters of him healing, demonstrating. And then, at the end of those two chapters in Matthew chapter 9, the end of those four chapters in Matthew chapter 9, this is what Matthew sums it up with. It's in 9, 35 through 38. It says this, See if this sounds familiar. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I did not read Matthew 4 again, 23. I read Matthew 9, 35. It's the same verse. It's bookends where Matthew is trying to help us see that this is what Jesus did. He went proclaiming and demonstrating. He went in word and deed, and then he spent two chapters modeling for us what it looks like to do it in word. And then he spent two chapters modeling for us what it looks like to do it in deed. And then he sums it up again in, in chapter uh, 9, 35, by saying this is what he did. He went proclaiming the word, and he went proclaiming and demonstrating in deed. And if that weren't enough, then in Matthew 10, 7 and 8, just a few verses later, he sends his disciples out. He sends them out, and he gives them this instruction. Just look it up on your own. I'm not going to show you, but Matthew 10, 7 and 8, it simply says this. Go proclaiming, a few words, proclaiming the gospel. Go healing. He sends the 12 out. So he calls them in Matthew chapter 4. He demonstrates it. He models it for them. And then he says, you go out and do the same. You go out proclaiming the word and proclaiming the word indeed. So here's where we'll land. 
Where does God have you? And how has he gifted you to be the vessel of his redemption and his work in the place where you are, where you can be someone who proclaims Christ in word and proclaims Christ in deed? Here's the challenge I want to give you. If you're in a connect group, I want you to, next time you gather, my connect group's gathering tonight, so if you're in my connect group, then be ready. This is what we're going to talk about. If you're in a connect group, I want you to think about it. I want you to gather as a group the next time you're together. I want you to think about how can we be doing this? How can we as a community of believers be proclaiming him in word and deed? What are the needs of our city? What are the needs of our neighborhood and our community, our school systems, our government, whatever it may be? What are the needs around us and how can we, as God has positioned us in this place, move into that? If you're in a journey group, same thing. Think about this. Talk about this. If you'll remember, one of the first weeks of the journey material talks about what are the needs where you live? Have you identified them? And if you have, how can you be a part of God's redemptive work in that place? Think about these things. Don't just let it be something that stays here, but move into the cities around you, into the places around you, and be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace that not only rescues us and saves us ourselves, for that we give great praise and thanks but also compels us, your love compels us to go, to be people who have been given this great privilege to proclaim your gospel in word and deed. Father, may we be a people who care deeply about those around us. We're aware of their needs. We're moving into their lives. We're dying to ourselves in a way to where we're giving up some things that we could certainly be doing. We're giving up our time and our resources for the sake of the gospel taking root in someone else's life as we become your hands and your feet and your voice, your words into their lives. Empower us, Lord. We, we feel weak to do this. We need your strength, Holy Spirit. Would you fill us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.